from the land of adventure and diversity come tales of survival, success and ingenuity. These are the stories of extraordinary Africans. Only on Faces of Africa. The story of Ethiopia's great monarch, modernizer, and tragic hero Haile Selassie starts in the thousand-year-old city of Harare. It was here in Harare that Rastafar, as he was known before his coronation as emperor, cut his political teeth. It also serves as a strong symbol of the difference between the ancient but primitive feudal society he grew up in and the modern nation he wanted to build. As a UNESCO World Heritage Site, Herrera cannot construct new buildings within the old city's walls. But new buildings do go up outside the old city, and technology creeps in from all directions. So the coming year is holy war. I mean, like, hopeful, no war, no problems. Jeff Pierce is a Canadian author who has spent 10 years working on a book about the country's war with Italy. In his decade of research, he has interviewed some of the top experts on Ethiopian history. Emperor Haile Selassie, of course, he had a special connection to Harar, and he invested in coffee plantations. He was very shrewd financially, um, but he was also very politically astute. These were the rules of King Haile Selassie. So these are medals which are gotten from different countries. Haile Gasho is a tour guide who has taught himself four languages and shows visitors around Haile Selassie's honeymoon palace in Harare. That's a very young Ras Yes, I think. Haile Selassie's time, actually, I was like too young for that, and my family used to mention that he's one of a good leader. And everything is, the main reason what they mention is everything is very peaceful, and most of the things are very cheap. They have been brought together by the man, dead almost four decades, who tried to bring together his nation, his continent and the world, often with his own personal touch. The most unique uh, habit of King Haile Selassie is not only present, pretending like a king and always staying in the palace. So my grandfather used to tell me that he always go to a place where people get sick, like in the hospitals, and visit people. And people who don't have finance, they're supported by King Haile Selassie. So he's a really nice king in my opinion. Rastafar was the son of nobleman Ras Makonen, a provincial governor. He was also an Ethiopian hero for fighting off invading Italians in the late 1800s. Ras Makonen is buried in this Harer church in a place of honor. His compatriots who died repelling the Europeans are buried underneath the church. His father decided to educate young Rastafar with tutors of different specialities, one an Ethiopian monk and the other a Mexican surgeon. Ras Makonen had two sons. Upon his death in 1908, his eldest, Yilma, inherited the post. Two years later, he also passed away and Rastafar became governor while still a teenager. If you want to understand the Ethiopian sort of feudal politics, is it was really like Game of Thrones. 
<laughs> it really was. Imagine this boy who's a duke, and he is given responsibilities to run this province at 14 years old. And he's trained by a Catholic priest. He's not trained by an Orthodox Ethiopian <laughs> cleric. So already the other nobles are suspicious of this kid. At 24, he was appointed regent by Empress Zeoditu, who used the young man to solidify her own hold on power due to his influential family. This made Rastafar heir to the throne, but he would have to survive some challenges to become emperor. When there was a rebellion against him, sometime around when he was regent and uh, soon to become emperor, he was, a, he was a fan of flight. And he got a plane, <laughs> and they bombed and machine-gunned the rebels. So you had these guys with spears and antique rifles and spears and shields coming out. And here's this biplane coming over, bombing you. Well, that ends that. Eventually, the Empress passed on, and it was time for him to take the throne. This moved him from Harer, through the Ethiopian countryside, to the new capital of Addis Ababa. At that time, we couldn't assume the buildings. There are huts, different kinds of huts, and a very big uh, house, maybe one commander of the army, the other low-level commanders, they built their huts around his uh, home, around 11,000 people in Addis Ababa. And there is no uh, road, you see, uh, nobody uh, can assume that. Therefore, when Haile Selassie came to uh, the power, very big uh, buildings were churches. While Addis was still primitive, the new emperor had big plans and decided to build a world-class palace that would impress Ethiopians and foreign visitors alike. This palace, also it was built after his coronation in 1934. In 1934, with 800 workers and eight months. His palace is now part of a museum on the ground of the country's first university, which he himself founded. His visits with students showed the early priority he was putting on modernizing education in Ethiopia. He used to visit many schools throughout the whole uh, Ethiopia. He was encouraging students to learn. He was even giving us incentives by giving a small amount of money. Uh, he used to give us sweater and so on and so forth. So he was encouraging us to learn. I grew up in a sort of 
and his family's schools, you know, I started with his grand grandson's school, and then his son, Mokonnen, and then went to his another grandson. In person, I had the opportunity once or twice to meet him. Haile Selassie wanted young people who could do more than just read or write, who would become diplomats, scientists, engineers. But he had to start with the basics. I think I must have been seven or eight years old. And we lined up to meet him. And that's the first time I saw him. And he gave us 50 cents each. And I value that money. That's the money I used to buy the first pencil and the first uh, uh, writing pad. The young emperor's passion for education would eventually bear fruit. But in the early years, it was opposed by the nobility that Rastafar had come from. See, Al Selassie used to give gifts on Christmas Day to the students going to school. Uh, in those days, the feudal system and the, uh, well, they call them now reactionaries, but the truly conservative people uh, didn't want their children to be uh, going to school and uh, get contaminated by Western culture. But Haile Selassie was desperate to have um, educated people for, for his administration, for his services. And uh, even the children, it is the servants' children that they sent to school. And uh, his first ministers were composed of uh, uh, mostly commoners, uh, not from the nobility. In order to push forward his agenda for modern education, he needed to win over this nobility, which he did by supporting tradition. Haile is a very good diplomat. He was also conservative. He tried to keep the tradition uh, of Ethiopian people and the tradition of the monarchy to keep his hierarchy. Uh, and he tried also uh, to keep uh, the throne. To unify the country and have everyone support his modern ideas, he would need to earn the loyalty of those from the country's other 80 tribes. Ethiopia is a federal state. There are 83 ethnic groups who represent 83 ethnic groups. Perhaps King Haile Selassie from three ethnic groups, Amara, Oromo, and Gurage, or Sinti. Therefore, what I was arrested, 83 ethnic groups, not easy. 80 ethnic groups, they have their own culture, their tradition, their belief. Even their traditional uh, kings, they have it. Perhaps the most crucial factor that helped him to unify the country and gain acceptance for his modernization program was the support of the powerful Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Upon his coronation, he was renamed Haile Selassie, in the Amharic language, Power of the Trinity. As emperor, he became the head of the Orthodox Church and by tradition had a religious right to rule. Before 1974, just the state and the religion, it was linked. Who coronated King Haile Selassie? By the church. That's why I said it. The churches, because the churches, it was belonging to for the king. He's more dominant. You cannot separate the churches and the kings. 
and also they have a power. Even also, also one third of the land it was belonged to for the churches. Of course, for us, you know, we 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 think he's like like God, you know, and uh, he himself did not give us that coin. By the way, it's Abhanna, his his treasurer, who goes out and hunts coin, and our eyes are with him. You know, a very short fellow, walking, and uh, you know, that that's it. You know, you can imagine at that age. <laughs> We thought God was on earth. While he was promoting an agenda based on logic and progressive ideas, legend was a powerful tool of the church. It claims a biblical relationship between its monarch and the famous Jewish leader and legendary wise man, King Solomon. The Ethiopian royal line, Sohaili Selassie himself, is said to descend directly from the Queen of Sheba. I, for one, it's very difficult to justify that Haile Selassie was a direct descendant of Haile Selassie and Queen Sheba, uh, Queen Sheba and uh, King Solomon. But we simply took it for granted, for we love and respect in Haile Selassie. It was before Christ, 955 BC. And while she was traveled to Israel, and she was a beautiful woman, and she was asleep with him. While she came to Ethiopia, she was pregnant and born Milik first after nine and five days. While Haile Selassie disavowed the legend to educated friends and foreigners, it was part of the powerful hold he had over the common people. The emperor's religious authority would seem to make it easy to unify the nation, but he decided to use his personal touch to make people believe in his love for his country and its people. He was everywhere in Ethiopia. He was with car, with car. Sometimes with uh, helicopter, for example, 1965. He was with uh, Queen Elizabeth in Gondor, Eritrea. Even they camping in Gondor, Gondor city, we were almost 40 kilometers far from Gondor, and they were camping. His accessibility also showed he had an open mind something that helped him learn from his people and change with the times. The other encounter was uh, when I was in civil aviation school. There is funny. I had a girlfriend. And in those days, you know, if you have a girlfriend, it has to be very, very secretive. So we're asked walking her home, and we made sure that we would not encounter her brother. So we took a small alley and so we were walking, taking our time, chatting, no car, 
and all of a sudden we heard a small knock on uh, on the horn we turned around it was emperor we saw the flag i pulled her out and we bowed i'll never forget it he looked at me laughing and he said i saw you <laughs> these are my my encounters actually while he spent a lot of time cultivating popularity with his Ethiopian subjects, he also courted international favor. He was a famous diplomat and uh, a lot of countries has a very good relation with him, uh, African countries, uh, Europe, or also America. He was everywhere, almost uh, 2,600 something, 2,700 times. He was visiting the 14 provinces during his time. At that time, it was 14 uh, provinces. Even he was visiting 167 countries in the world. Occasionally, there was criticism. Well, his detractors would say he's going there to have fun. Uh, but I'm sure it's for diplomatic uh, purposes that he went. Uh, he would go to America, meet Kennedy or uh, Eisenhower. I think he had met them both. Uh, uh, he, I don't think he would just jibe and, and, and come back. He would come with um, programs of aid and uh, projects of one sort of, uh, or another. The emperor learned about modern ideas and technology, bringing home worldly knowledge and friendships. Haile Selassie anticipated globalization, even on the modest scale of the 1930s. In 1923, he signed Ethiopia up to be the first African country to join the League of Nations, the forefather of the United Nations. I decided to come myself to defend the cause of my people before the Council of the League of Nations. I hope that the Council will be good enough to excuse me from reading the whole of my declaration. He saw his country being pulled between the development of an industrialized Europe and its place in its own still wild continent of Africa. He would send young Ethiopians, very talented young intelligentsia, off to the capitals of Europe to get an education, because he recognized that the country had to modernize. His initial choice appeared to be to lean toward Europe. There he mined ideas that would help build ministries, schools and institutions that were aimed at taking Ethiopia from a primitive feudal state to a modern nation. In 1931, he became the first absolute ruler to voluntarily write a constitution which established a judicial system while still keeping most of the power of government in the emperor's hands.
Until uh, 1974, he shows different kinds of developments in the country. We couldn't uh, deny these kinds of uh, uh, changes. The first constitution was written in his uh, Moroccan time. The second constitution uh, also improved by uh, his uh, power time. He tried to bring Ethiopia to civilization, to, to civilize the society, but um, how far uh, he, he tried to, 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 to bring this country, it, is, it, it has its own uh, limitation. And Nassim was highly interested uh, to have many modern, uh, modern scholars in Ethiopia to change, to bring fundamental change in terms of civilization and development as well. His early efforts to modernize his country through education had only six years to progress before tragedy struck. In 1936, fascist Italy decided once again to be the first European colonizers of Ethiopia. The entire world was fascinated by this war. It was on the New York Times, it was in the London Times. 20,000 black Americans were marching in Harlem over this war. There are battleships in the Mediterranean about to go to war with Italy over this war. And it was a precursor to the Second World War. It had a huge impact on world events. The emperor tried to use his connections to head off the Italian attack. He delivered an impassioned speech to the League of Nations, pleading for the world's interference. The jeers of fascists in the gallery did not stop him. I am here to claim justice, he said. What reply shall I take back to my people? So, said the emperor, it is us today, it will be you tomorrow. <laughs> We mind Mary, Bazanzaman Hedo, the League of Nations Forum Lai, Shangolai, Avituta Yakarabe, Kasacho Vitilam. Our Emperor also made a very remarkable and prophetic speech. He said to them, It is we today and you tomorrow. After which all the Europeans are fallen under the strongest and brutal heel of Hitler. So it was a kind of prophecy that had already taken place. His eloquence, moral authority, and logic fell on deaf ears. Despite the League's refusal to intervene, he continued to hope that the strength of his people and the righteousness of their position would defeat the Italians. It is good that you are here to record this picture of me in my palace garden at Addis Ababa. People who see this throughout the world will realize that even in the 20th century, with faith, courage, and a just cause, David will still beat Goliath. The Italians hit Harer, his youthful stronghold. 
Mussolini's planes bombed this city. They wiped out the oldest mosque in Africa, and few people know about it, but uh, there was no military installations here. They just decided, let's scare the living daylights out of, uh, of the Hararis. And High Emperor Haile Selassie, of course, he had a special connection to Harar, and, and he was very hurt, but, you know, he was very emotionally moved by the plight of the people here. Eventually, the Italians took the capital, burning his palace and shocking Ethiopians with their targets. They killed more than 300 uh, priests and monks. It retarded the country. The Italians under Mussolini massacred an entire generation that could have led this country into the 20th and 21st century. Haile Selassie went into exile in Bath, England in 1936. He nearly died there practically of pneumonia and sickness because it was so cold he wasn't used to the climate. He came back here and I believe it affected his character deeply that he was never going to give up control and never going to divest control to other people. For five long years the Emperor suffered in tough conditions, in damp cold weather until 1941. Once the Italians were chased out by Ethiopian freedom fighters operating from the countryside, he was welcomed home to reclaim his throne and once again tried to unite and modernize Ethiopia. We had the most difficult time with him uh, when the Italian invasion, for example, Ethiopia had never been invaded by any enemy. It had been always uh, free uh, land, uh, the freedom fighter and uh, these people defended their country. Five years was his time. And he was lucky enough to actually regain the freedom and uh, helped many of the African nations to get their freedom too. And so he was really a very special, uh, God-gifted person. But his time away from home had given him some valuable perspective and he would return with a plan on how to build a new Ethiopia and how to try and empower Africa so it could look after its own. The pillars he would build his modern Ethiopia on would be people, educators, cultural heroes, diplomats, engineers and mechanics, and even pilots. To try and connect Africans, he would build an airline and use his wisdom, charm, and diplomatic experience to move Africa forward toward an era of independence and unity. <laughs> 